Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Students of the Bible often wrongly emphasize the sins of individuals over and above the forgiveness of sins as a general proclamation of the King. When this proclamation is contextualized in the New Testament, it pertains to redemption. Literally, one's purchase in the marketplace and the paying off, or forgiveness, of former debts. The news of this forgiveness is a warning. Yes, your debts have been covered, but now you are in debt to a new master, duty-bound to follow the rules of his household. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 1 Eight. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 271 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I mentioned Father Paul's point about this section of Matthew and the way that it mirrors Galatians. And here we have at the beginning of chapter 9 the closing of that loop, because Jesus, who went on a missionary trip to the nations, to the Gentiles, is now coming back to his own city in the same way that Paul went to the Gentiles and then came back to Jerusalem in Galatians. Right, and the work that both Paul and Jesus are doing does not change whichever side of the sea they're on. They are continuing to bring this word, this gospel, this teaching to the Gentiles. And there is one gospel. This is a critical point in Galatians that although Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter the apostle to the Jews, there was only one gospel, just two different audiences And he stresses this at the beginning of the letter when he talks about angels being considered anathema should they disagree with what Paul has set forth in his epistle. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Not only is he crossing over the sea without the drama of going over the first time when there was the storm and having to calm down his disciples so that they would defer to him just as nature itself defers to Jesus, he comes over and moreover he enters into his own city. Cities are always pregnant and so he's going into the city and we're going to see what the state of the city is. Usually the city is the place where people try to control things, people try to set up laws and try to order the way that people act, but it's also where wealth is. It's the focus of human power and human authority. So what happens when Jesus enters into this place? In verse 1 and then in verse 2, he 
finds his first sick person and he says, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven you. So this mirrors the multiple events that we saw in the last chapter where Jesus kept healing people in different scenes. This scene is different because he's gone back over to his own side of the sea and he's in a city. So things we would expect are going to go differently. Obviously, Richard, one distinctive feature of verse two is the forgiveness of sins. And I appreciate the fact that you mentioned that he was heading back to the city, which is a place of institutional power, because the will of God for his people, which is the forgiveness of sins, their redemption from the slave market, that is the will that Jesus is preaching in verse 2 in order to set free his son. He's encouraging him because he is announcing the good news that sins are forgiven, that it is the will of his Father that sins are forgiven. And here, it's very important that we don't personalize this as though Jesus is talking about the individual sins of this person. He is talking about his bondage to a different master. The forgiveness of sins is our redemption in that very technical sense, Richard, that we are set free from our old master to become the servant of a new master. This is emphasized when Jesus says, son. Why would he say son? This is not his son. This is a man who is sick, and there have been other people who've been sick. Why would he emphasize son? This is drawing our attention to the pecking order again. Jesus has authority because he brings this word. He brings this gospel. When he says your sins are forgiven, like you said, Father, this is the redemption of the slave. This is the redemption of the one who went astray. This is the opposite of having faith. When one has faith, one trusts completely in the word of the master, which the master says, you must do this or that, and you follow through because it's your duty. When your master gives you a set of tasks, you're either a faithful servant and you do those tasks, or you're a sinner, you don't do those tasks. Many people get uptight about, you know, whether our faith is works-based or not works-based or, you know, whatever. No, I mean, it's clear when you have a slave and you have a servant or a son, you know, yes, my son loves me or whatever, fine. But is he doing what he's supposed to be doing? Because one day I'm going to be dead and how much he loves me, it doesn't do anybody any good. But is he able to take care of himself based on what I taught him as my son? I have to teach him. And the only way I know that the teaching is getting through is if he carries out his actions and his life in a different way. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. You have this recurring theme in Matthew that it is the learned of Israel the scribes, the Pharisees, those who are experts in the letter, as indicated by the word scribe in Greek, grama, those who are experts in what is written, and the Pharisees who are teachers. So here, the scribe is saying this person blasphemes. And the scandal, of course, is that the forgiveness of sins is the will of the Father in the content of the gospel. So why the scribe doesn't understand that it is God's will that all men are set free from the tyranny of Caesar is an interesting question. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting question, which the centurion answered in one way, which is, I know you have authority. I respect your authority. Your word has all the authority that I need. 
for my person to be healed, for my boy to be healed. And this son is healed simply by virtue of the word that Jesus speaks. But the scribes had an entirely different response, which is he blasphemes, meaning Jesus is going above his station. The scribes want to have authority. So when Jesus's word has authority, the only way they can combat this is to say, the translation I would say here is among themselves. Sometimes it translates it as in themselves or inside themselves, but it's really among themselves. So the scribes are gossiping against Jesus and saying, who does he think he is? He's blaspheming. He doesn't have this right. Where did he get this right from? Where did he get this authority from? Who does he think he is? That's why they say this. He's speaking above his station, according to them. Why would they not see that the Father wants everyone to have their sins forgiven, that they might stop rebelling and trust in his word? But the scribes are more afraid of Jesus, the person, and whether he has the right to speak such things. Again, just like the disciples, just like the crowds, they're more interested in Jesus's person than in his word. And so this is very consistent with what Matthew's been saying for quite a while now. Jesus is saying to the man, your sins are forgiven. They are declared as such in the content of this teaching. It is the will of the Father of Jesus that these sins are forgiven. He is announcing it to him. It's so important to remember that. And it doesn't surprise me that this is precisely what happens once he enters the city, because the city is the center of politics. And politics, of course, comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. Everyone in the city is trying to figure out who's above whom. Everyone wants power over the other person. So it's precisely in the city that the scribes are used to vying for power and need to show others how they're going to come out on top. And here I want to challenge the translation of verse 4. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Earlier in verse 3, we heard that the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. So when we come to verse 4. In English, it sounds like Jesus was reading their mind. In fact, Jesus is, in verse 4, aware of their private deliberations. And so when he says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? He's not reading minds or seeing into hearts the way it's often characterized. We know that what's written on their heart is evil because when they deliberated among themselves, they contradicted the will of the Father. It's clear. And I want our listeners to hear this point and reflect on it, that Jesus is teaching. He is announcing the content of the teaching, which is the proclamation that sins are forgiven. He is aware that the scribes are talking among themselves, accusing him of blasphemy. And he knows that their reasoning is evil because what's written on their heart has produced a blasphemous statement. That's the thing. They're committing blasphemy because they're going up against the will of God. And this mention of evil really cements this notion that they're going against the will of God. Because remember in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, not long ago, it was always the poniros, the ponira, which was the foil against which Jesus was speaking, that we have this desire to do what is evil, and this is what God must keep us from, must keep us from evil, remember the Lord's Prayer, 
but what is evil is what we ourselves want to do as we function against God's will and our will then goes up against God's will and causes us to rebel and this is where the evil comes from so the evil in their hearts collectively not necessarily each individual heart but collectively as they're gossiping is that they want to rebel why do they want to rebel? Because they want to have Jesus's authority. They want to usurp Jesus's authority. But Jesus has no authority except the word that he speaks. And these scribes, sadly, could be speaking the same word, but they don't. Since they are not speaking the words of Scripture, Jesus has to bring the gospel to them. This is how Jesus functions over and against their will. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up? and walk. In verse 5, Jesus is drawing a parallel. And again, it's very much patterned after the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Because if you have been forgiven, meaning you've been loosed from all of your debts, someone bought you, and then your debts were forgiven, anything that you owed, anything you were accountable for has been wiped away. But now that you've been forgiven, and you're part of the household of your new master, you actually have something to do. You have to get up and walk according to his instruction. It's a beautiful verse. Yes, it parallels very much Peter's mother-in-law, who as soon as she was healed, served Jesus. She was representing the Torah, but when she got well, she went and she served. Allowing this person who is a paralytic to get up and walk, significantly, the word is peripati, which is the same word peripateo, which is hithalech, which is to walk according to the precepts of the law. This is how it's used in the Old Testament. He's not just getting up and walking, you know, getting from here to there, but now he's able to fulfill the precepts of Torah, just like the mother-in-law of Peter. To say your sins are forgiven, okay, that is a kind of state, it's kind of a philosophical situation to be in, but he's saying, arise and walk, so now it's time to do something. So which is easier to say, you're in a forgiven state, or it's time to get up and walk. It's time to get up and act and do according to the will of the Father. The parallel with Peter's mother-in-law is encouraging in the sense that here Jesus is offering the Jewish household. He's offering the person living in his own city in Judea. He's offering this person the same compassion and the same mercy that he offers the Gentile centurion, and the same mercy he offered the Gadarenes. In other words, there is one gospel that is sent to two audiences, but the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all. And again, it's a proclamation. It's not about your disposition. It's about the Father's disposition towards all those upon whose ears this decree falls. The forgiveness of sins is a given because the Father wills it. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And six parallels five. Jesus in verse six is saying, look, you don't understand that there's no daylight between the proclamation of the Father's will, 
that debts are wiped out, and the proclamation of the Father's will that all those who have heard the news that their debts have been wiped out have work to do. So let me help you understand. I want you to know exactly what I'm teaching and that I have the authority to teach this because that authority comes from my Father. It is then that Jesus said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And the point isn't that the miracle proves he has the power to forgive sins. The point is that the walking, according to God's precepts, the standing up and walking shows and manifests the power of the Father's decree of the forgiveness of sins. The parallel is front and center in this pericope. It's as if they don't understand that being forgiven of your sins is of no point if you're not actually going to get up and walk according to the precepts of the law. If you say, oh, no, I trust in the Lord, but then don't actually do what he tells you to do. And this is exactly what Hosea complains about in chapter 6, because the people say, oh, we love you. We're going to do what you say. You tear us down and you bind us up. And then as soon as the sun rises, you're like dew that just evaporates. They say, oh, forgiveness of sins. Fine. But if you're not walking according to the precepts, what's the point? It's almost as if he's speaking to the weakness of the scribes. You're looking at me whether I'm able to teach this or not, as if I need to be able to do something to prove that I'm worthy. My word is simply to give people the ability to carry out the will of the Father. That's what the teaching does. If you want to see that the word actually works, if you want to see that the teaching is actually effective, watch this guy who's paralyzed get up and actually do what he's supposed to do. And if this guy who's paralyzed can get up and do what he's supposed to do simply by virtue of the word of the Father, where does that leave you? Because technically you're not paralyzed. Technically you have the word. Technically you know what you're supposed to be doing. But if you're just going to sit around and be happy that your sins are forgiven, what's the use? Because you haven't actually done what the Father commanded you to do. You haven't actually walked according to Torah, according to his teaching. That's the problem. Who's really paralyzed? The one who is told to get up and walk and goes and does the will of the Father, the one who knows the will of the Father and just sits on his behind and doesn't do anything. Who's the one who's paralyzed? And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. I take issue with that translation, Richard, because until now, we've dealt with this very important word, this technical word, amazement which has a very specific value in the Gospel of Matthew. And here, as if to create some kind of effect or continuity, they translate the word foveo, which, for those who speak English, should strike you as being very similar to the word phobia. They translate this word as awestruck, when in fact it implies fear, and running away or being put to flight, it implies terror. So the crowds aren't amazed. They're not going ooh and ah because some miracle happened. They see the power of Jesus Christ, that the one who sets you free from bondage in a false master's household, the one who sets you free from bondage to the enemy, is also the one who can make you walk according to the commandments of God. They recognize that power, and they are rightly terrified. And in fear, they give glory to God, 
who had given such authority to men. They understand now that the authority comes from the will of the Father who declares, who declares by fiat from his throne that sins are forgiven. Remember, it's not personal. It could have been any character in the story if Jesus was ready to teach and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, he could have proclaimed it to anyone. It's about being set free and absolved from the bondage to Pharaoh, the bondage to Caesar. So far, I haven't had a lot of faith in the crowds, the ohli, but yeah, we have a different word here, definitely, Father, that they were afraid, they became afraid rather than they simply marveled. I think this is a step in the right direction, but, you know, again, I just get worried because they get so focused on the guy and glorified God, which had given such power to human beings. I'd prefer they were afraid of the word, and they were afraid of the power of the word of God. Glorified God, who had given such a teaching to human beings, not necessarily power on its own. It just sounds a little suspicious to me. We'll see how this unfolds. Is this real fear that's going to prompt them to action, or are they going to shake in their boots until the adrenaline goes away and then go back to their regular lives as functional paralytics? You're right, Rich. It is hard to believe that the crowds are somehow making a turnaround, but it's also hard to ignore that Matthew's using a different word. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out as we move through the narrative. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.